Good morning, church. Would you please turn in your copy of God's Word today to Nehemiah chapter 4. Be in chapter 4 today, looking at the first six verses. Next week, while we're gone, you'll have the privilege of hearing from John 2. He's going to be bringing a message from Colossians chapter 4 on praying earnestly, seeking God, and how praying and watchfulness in prayer is tied to our evangelism. The week after that, you'll have the privilege of hearing from Dustin Haddock. He's going to be bringing a message from Psalm 1. But this morning, we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 4, and we'll pick up with the first verse. Please remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now it happened that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and very vexed and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they complete it in a day? Can they bring the stones to life from the dusty rubble, though they are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have vexed the builders. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height and the people had a heart to work. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we come before you this morning as we do each week, confessing to you that we are unable to make anything of this word rightly without your Holy Spirit. We ask that he would work among us, opening eyes that have never before seen the glory of Jesus so that they might believe. And for those of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but find ourselves in deep seasons of affliction, would you help us to see anew again today the gift of Christ for us, the victory in him that every battle we will ever face is won. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the name John Bunyan is still, to some extent, one of the most recognizable names in the English language. Most people have heard of his great allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. You'd expect any man credited with the title of author of the second most popular book in the English language would carry some lingering notability. Bunyan wrote extensively beyond Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote 60 or more other works. Many of them were adapted from his sermons. Most people don't know that John Bunyan was a man who was familiar with afflictions. He was held in custody in the Bedford County Prison for 12 years because he would not stop preaching on a weekly basis the gospel of Jesus Christ. All he had to do to be released and go home to his wife 
and house full of kids was to sign a paper that he would no longer preach the gospel at the local Bedford Church Fellowship, of which he was pastor. Hear the man's response to his particular afflictions. He said he would rather stay in jail until moss grew on his eyelids rather than disobey the commandment of his God. At the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, I read some of these words penned around the time of Bunyan's death in regards to how Christians can think about facing and responding to affliction. Bunyan counsels, The school of the cross is the school of light. It discovers the world's vanity, baseness, and wickedness, and lets us see more of God's mind. Out of dark affliction comes spiritual light. In times of affliction, we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of the love of God. The Lord uses his flail of tribulation to separate the chaff from the wheat. And, if you're able, bear the rod of affliction which God shall lay upon you. But remember this lesson. You are beaten that you might become better. As we seek to reach this county for King Jesus, beloved, we can expect a multitude of divinely appointed and carefully calculated and perfectly applied afflictions, all for the sake of making us better. The Christian under fire must keep both the sovereignty and, at the same time, the unfailing love of God at the forefront of his mind. In the midst of trial, it is tempting to think that God has left us. What we fail to realize is that affliction is often God's main tool not to slow down our growth in Christ-likeness, but to accelerate it. The trick is learning to work with the grain of our trials and not against them. Well, in this morning's text, you'll see again this battle of wits that I've called it since the beginning of Ezra. Things are heating up for Nehemiah in his day. They've got their hands full with the rebuilding work while a band playing the song One Angry Moabite is being very raucous in the background. In the Hebrew scriptures, the six verses that we're going to look at this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, actually belong to the previous chapter. They belong to chapter 3, and they would have been verses 33 to 38 if you look at it from the Hebrew Bible perspective. Chapter 3 is what you might call the employee assignments for Nehemiah's job site. And these six verses, wherever you decide to place them, tell us what the average workday was like. They built the wall up to half its height. We'll get there at the end. But you see what they were dealing with throughout. That is to say that they were constantly beset with affliction. They were challenged. They were often discouraged. We're going to see this again in Nehemiah and again in Nehemiah and again and again. But when it's time for the antagonists to step on stage, Sanballat loves to put himself first. 
In verse 1, we're told that Sanballat heard about what was going on. We're not exactly told when he heard or at what point in the progress of the building. With a large number of his kinsmen and perhaps his military garrison coming along with him in verse 2, his own little Antifa rally he's brought, it's possible that he may have had a recruiting trip back to Samaria before he shows up at Jerusalem rattling the sabers. But when he does hear about what's going on, what comes out of him in the presence of all these people is some serious emotion. Depending on your translation, Nehemiah describes his reaction to the construction as anger, that's the LSV or ESV, NIV, rage, the New Living Translation chooses that word, or fury, the Christian Standard Bible and the Amplified Version. I really love the Old King James Version here. It says that Sanballat was wroth. It's a mouthful. This was followed by indignation or vexation, depending on what you have in front of you. He basically went from hot under the collar to, I'm so mad I can't see straight in a hiccup. For you literature buffs out there, this is called a hendiatus. That means one by the means of two. He uses these two phrases, from anger to fury, to tell us one main idea. His temperature ramped up, crescendoed very, very fast. It seems like this guy spends all of his time, by the way, being frustrated and mad. But you can't see this in your English Bible. In the Hebrew, though, it comes out very clearly through some root words in the Hebrew that his frustration fires have been burning and growing for some time now. In chapter 2, verse 10, we see that he was displeased. In chapter 2, verse 19, he and his comrades jeer at the Jews. Now the fire of wrath here in this chapter is in full flame. But before we get too deep into the text, you need to keep this in mind as we deal with the rest of this morning sermon, and the rest of Nehemiah. Sanballat can't do anything to stop God's work. Sanballat cannot do anything to stop God's work. He is helpless. He is impotent. He has no track to run on. Commentator Charles Fincham describes the situation in these words. He says, This is the anger of one who was uncertain what to expect or what to do. He could not complain about it to the Persian king because Nehemiah did the work by permission. He was a helpless spectator of events of which he did not approve. Now think about this for just a minute. The big dog in this story, the bad guy, the one who seems to be on top, is not the bad guy. That's not the big dog. We always think of the bad guy as the one who's really in charge of the situation. The oppressor isn't in control here. Those who are being oppressed have all power through the sovereign God who is over them. They have God's blessing to do this work. The ones who have the high ground in God's economy, and this is the way we need to learn to see things, beloved, the ones who have the high ground in God's economy are the ones who are usually in the valley. 
the last are always the ones that end up first. Here is a place for the surety of the various troubles of your soul right now. If you are in Christ, though you may spend your life under wave after wave of trials and afflictions, in Christ all the threats of the world, the flesh, and the devil are empty. They're hollow. They're futile. They are a childlike tantrum. Here today and gone tomorrow. In Jesus Christ, nothing can touch you. To use Paul's language, in Christ, you have always already conquered. You are more than a conqueror, Romans 8.37. Consider for a moment the significance of that statement in relation to the affliction that you're currently suffering. A conqueror is one who trains and makes ready his fight against his adversary. He strategizes and plans. He is shrewd in thinking through the battle ahead. He confronts his enemies, perhaps more in number and far greater in power than he, but he doesn't back down. A conqueror is one who goes to fight and comes out winning. Now, the question is, when Paul says, you're more than a conqueror, is how can you be more than that? What is better than a war that leads to victory? What is better than you showing up, doing your job, and winning the battle? I want to come back to Sanballat's fit in verses 2 and 3 here in just a minute, but I want to make this point. At this point in Romans 8... Paul is begging the question, who will, future tense, separate us from the love of Christ? In the future, as we progress through this timeline of life, who's going to separate? What will be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Will it be affliction? Will it be turmoil or persecution or even famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? He goes on to quote the 44th Psalm, remarking how Christians suffer all day long. We're like a group of sheep headed through that sheep gate from last week to be slaughtered. But listen how the LSB phrases verse 37. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's what he means by more than conquerors. A mere conqueror is one who must but does defeat his enemy. He who overwhelmingly conquers has already defeated every enemy. On into the future, forever and ever, amen. In Christ, we have already overcome. In Christ, we cannot lose. In Christ, we can never by any means be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. No matter what evil the world throws at you, what sickness you encounter, what the government restricts you from doing, what mandates they lay on your health, what challenges you face financially, you cannot fall away from your adoption in Jesus Christ. No matter how many nations rage or the people's plot against your efforts in vain to complete the mission of kingdom expansion here in this city, no matter what the devil would attempt to convince you to believe about the inadequacy of your ability to fulfill your God-given task, 
No matter how much devastation lays around you, right at your own front door even, you can't even open it. And how hopeless at times your remediation efforts feel. Beloved, you cannot lose the victory that Christ has already won for all of those trials. All of them. No matter how many times you fight the same sin and fail. Or don't even try, but you just give in at the start. Or shout at God in your heart because you still can't get victory over your own soul. And in frustration, you blame Him for it. Even in that moment, you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Church at Christ the King, in spite of your imperfect efforts, you cannot help in Jesus Christ but overcome. Through Christ, you will always overwhelmingly conquer. Now the question is, why? That's the issue. Why? Why do we always overwhelmingly conquer? Because God has made a decree about you in Jesus Christ. He has written your name in a book with permanent ink that can never be blotted out, written with and sealed with the very blood of his own beloved son. You say, but Chris, you don't understand. You don't know how many times I've failed. I don't feel like a conqueror. I feel like I'm a walking defeat every day. You know that's because you're looking at yourself. But if you would stop and consider that above any given human being on earth, you, in spite of your wickedness and laziness, you are still, at this very moment, a beloved child of God, you would be forced to remember this one thing. You aren't walking in defeat anymore. But because Christ walked the Calvary road, your defeats have been defeated. Jesus conquered the past, present, and the future for everyone here in Christ. No one or no thing can take away your adoption to God. And along with those adoption papers that you were given, you were also given good works, a task to do. A task which, by the way, you can't fail. Because Jesus has already overcome everything in your way. Now, don't mishear me. You do have to get up each day and do the work that God called you to do. But just as Sanballat, in this passage, has no recourse, he hears about what the Jews are doing, and I can't do anything. I have nothing that I can do. What can he say? Nehemiah had a decree from the king. He had a decree to build. So do you, beloved. So do you. All the enemies of God can do at this point is make a lot of childish noise. They're trying to make you fearful. And unfortunately, it's usually enough to cow most Christians into inaction or into hesitation or into thinking a little bit longer about that big decision that you've been thinking on for about five months. Why not? Cost is high. You've got to count the cost. Got to get some more advice. Better wait until I'm good and ready. You need to watch out, brethren. Because that can sound a lot like, you know, the people who live in that land are strong. 
and the cities are fortified and very large. And indeed, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek, Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. I know we have a decree of God to go into that land, but we should probably get a little bit more advice. In Numbers 13, those wicked spies conclude by saying, we are not able to go up against this people because they are too strong for us. The truth of the reality is, whatever strong people look like they lie ahead of you, they've already been defeated in Jesus Christ. You have already overcome the enemies that you have yet to face. You are already victorious in Jesus. They may shake their fists and stamp their feet and make some noise, but they are incapable of doing anything to prevent your victory in the Lord. I think I've mentioned to some of you, we've had a number of picture Bibles for our young children. Before they could read, it gets them into a routine of having their own little Bible time and, and Bible in their lap in front of them each day. And Selah's been reading through the uh, Read and Share Bible She's been through it so many times, she comes to me at the end of each morning, she's like, Daddy, I've got this Bible memorized. It's so sweet. One of my favorite illustrations in that Bible is from the story of Job. Satan is depicted standing behind Job, on whom he has already leveled affliction after affliction. The cartoon drawing of it has Job covered with some nasty-looking sores. But the righteous man himself is in a kneeling position. He's smiling. He's praying to God and placing his trust in the one who knows all things. And by contrast, Satan is in the background, turned around, walking away, stamping his feet. He's angry. Sam Ballot. And every enemy you'll ever face, that's the reality. In Christ, that's the reality. All they are is angry and mad and they can't do anything. Because you have a decree sealed by the blood of Jesus to work for God, a decree which you will fulfill. It's frustrated defeat. That's the only sound they make. One of our psalms that we sing on Sunday mornings asks the question, I've seen the wicked's, bow, the wicked's bow bending. I hear he's searching for you. With all around the foundations upending and us with numbers so few, what can the righteous do? In light of the work of Calvary and Paul's words in Romans 8, I'd ask a different question. What can the unrighteous do? Well, let's look a little bit into Sanballat's impotent rage here. In verse 2, he gives a speech to his kinsmen, and depending on your translation, it might be the army of Samaria or the wealthy men of Samaria. The word is a little bit difficult to translate army. It's almost always in the Hebrew Old Testament, and most translations translated a military garrison or an army. I couldn't find any notes why the New American Standard or the LSB committees chose to translate it wealthy men. That is a possible translation. Most of the other translations choose an army. It's likely that Sanballat had access to a squad of soldiers of some size. You may remember last week I mentioned that he was possibly the governor of Samaria at this time. Who better to rally with and make some noise than with his military buddies? Now, I'm no pro at insults, but honestly, I think 
The ones that he gives here are pretty lame. They're pretty weak. He could have done a better job, and I think based on the laughter I just heard, you all were probably thinking the same thing this week. This wouldn't have slowed me down. I would have punched him in the face and kept working. Come on. You read these words, and it sounds like a kid at the playground who didn't get picked for the kickball game, and he's sitting over there on the log making fun of everybody. Were this guy alive today, he probably could have taken some drama lessons from AOC or something like that. He asks five demeaning questions. So we'll go through these together. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? The word feeble means weak, languishing, miserable. The Hebrew root word has to do with a withering plant. Here the jab is about the work needing to be done and the perceived inability of those who are doing it. The Christian Standard Bible chooses a modern word, pathetic. What are these pathetic Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? That's a strange way of phrasing that. He's probably intending to communicate, do they actually think they're going to get away with this? Do they actually think they can do this? Can they offer sacrifices? I heard one commentator said that he's probably asking something along the lines of, are they just going to pray this wall up? They think they're going to get away with this? They think they can just pray this wall up? Can they complete it in a day? Now, that's a shot at their diligence. Kind of a shot at Nehemiah's diligence, too, if you ask me. You could say this one with a smug tone. They work so hard. They act like they'll get this done today. You can insert your own little maniacal laughter of some enemy or villain. Will Templeton reminded me yesterday of the Pharisees' similar mockery of Christ when he told them, oh, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. You remember what the Pharisees said? They said, "Uh, it's taken a long time to build that temple. There's no way you can build it. Come on, are you going to do it in a day? Can you do it in three days? I'll give you three days. Don't think you can do it. His last question, though, in my mind, is the most provocative. Can they bring the stones to life from the dusty rubble, though they are burned? This one kind of begs a question. Was it really that bad? I mean, we talked about eight-foot-thick walls that were subjected to an open flame. Now, that fire would have had to have been pretty intense to do any significant damage to these walls, unless the walls were made of limestone. Then the fire could have made them more brittle and caused some fracturing. A lot of the description that we get from the wall come from these taunts, so how do you take it? We're not entirely sure. But here's where this last one ought to incite some zeal in us. When you start accusing God of not being able to raise things from the dead, you've crossed a line. Our God has so much power, he could raise himself from the dead. Is he incapable of helping Nehemiah regardless of what the damage was? How dare Sanballat speak against Yahweh like this? Now, we'll get to imprecatory prayers here in just a minute. But statements like this deserve God's judgment. Jesus said there is one sin that won't be forgiven. When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you cross the line. Don't miss the choice of words either. 
can they bring these stones to life from the dusty rubble? This insult that Sanballat asks reminds me of another passage in which God asked a question of one of his prophets. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, said Ezekiel, and he brought me out by the spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of a valley. And it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them all around. And behold, there were very many and on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know, from Ezekiel 37, 1 to 3, does God raise the dead to life again? As often as he pleases. Sanballat's mockery is next level childishness. And then comes in Tobiah, his walk-around parrot-like sidekick, who chimes in and attempts an insult, which sounds even worse than the ones that Sanballat gave. If something as light-footed as a fox goes up on the wall, well, the whole thing will come down. What are they building, a Jenga tower here? He plays the part of the discount sidekick very, very well. Now, I want you to consider this, beloved. Sanballat has gone on this tirade of derision against the people of the Lord to intimidate them and drum up support from his own base. He and Tobiah and Geshem are holding Israel in derision. The Hebrew word la'og, the word for jeered in verse 1 in the LSB, is the same word used of God's response to the nations raging in Psalm 2. Consider this, you have a Moabite, an Ammonite, and an Arab railing against the people of God, the nations raging. But they themselves are the ones under derision. Now I said earlier that the biggest problem with these techniques is that they usually work on us, though they're impotent, though they have no power, though we've already overcome in Christ, these techniques usually prove effective. When you have a society of men who have been trained to think like cogs in a machine, input information, output information, that's the story of my life. When you have a society of men who have been told that they must submit equally to women not just by their feminazi high school literature teacher, and not just by a female police officer, and not just by their own mothers, and by example, their fathers, if they had them, but by their pastors. When you have men who in every sphere, who have been bred to not be men as God designed and commanded them, then the enemy of our souls and the slanderer of the brethren and his angelic and human devotees start this sort of baby talk, and it's no surprise that the men give in to the baby talk. The most shameful thing of all is not that men today, Christian men, give in to this tactic, but it's when they employ the tactics themselves on their own families. Notice the progression again. Sanballat hears about the Jews. He gets angry, which turns into fury, which turns into mockery. Dads, 
Jeremy prayed about this in his pastoral prayer. How are you feeling about those conflicts with your kids from this last week? You hear that squabble involving that one child who just can't seem to get it. Your blood pressure starts to rise. It only takes a moment and then snap. In front of your wife and the rest of the family, you start publicly shaming a child. You shout. You expose their sin in front of those who had nothing to do with it. You make fun of your own child because deep down, you want them to hurt because they did something so stupid. And they deserve it. Brother, hear what I'm about to say very carefully. In that moment, you are doing the work of Team Serpent. You have adopted the enemy's own game plan and are now mocking your own heritage along with him. God turned the jeering of Israel's enemies back on them. Do you want God against you? Jesus said to his followers that with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Psalm 5 says, The boastful Yahweh cannot stand in your presence. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors a man of bloodshed and treachery. Now you're saying, but Chris, I don't understand. You're mixing things up. We're in Christ now. All the judgment fell on Jesus. That's what you said earlier. We make mistakes, but he took the punishment. We no longer belong to that realm. The old man is dead. That's my point exactly. How can you who died to sin still live in it? At one time, you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds. But that's in the past. Such were some of you. There's a husband or father here today who needs to confess his jeering at home to God. And then he needs to go home to his wife and children and repent. It does not matter how many times this makes. He needs to repent for his raging outbursts. Then he needs to tell his brothers here, next step, without concealing any of the darkest details, and ask for help in murdering this sin. If you're going to help build the city of God, you have to clear the rubble at your own front door. Now, what you see Nehemiah do in verses 4 and 5 is his reaction. And I told you that in Nehemiah, we're going to be paying a lot of attention to how we react to conflict, affliction, suffering. In these verses, and by the way, this is the first of about seven prayers that Nehemiah is going to make throughout the rest of the narrative which he typically makes a request for God to help him or remember him in his plight. See what's going on, God, would you remember? But this first prayer is the longest, and it's the only one with a strong imprecatory flavor to it. He's making curses against other people. Now, I've said in weeks past that we can't control what the other side does, but we can control how we respond. Above all else, I want you to see that Nehemiah's prayer is just that. It is controlled. Notice first that Nehemiah didn't answer them. They're shaming he and his team as they rebuild the wall 
And Nehemiah doesn't turn and start shouting at them. He doesn't gather his base together to start a counter-protest. He doesn't walk down to the Raging Nations rally for an open, moderated public debate. Notice this. He doesn't answer fools according to their folly. Instead, he prays to El Roy, the God who sees. And he prays just like Jesus taught us to pray. In a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me justice for my opponent. And for a while, he was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect men, yet because this widow is bothering me, I will give her justice, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge has said. Now will God not bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. Now that's the second thing that I want you to notice here. Justice is the theme of Nehemiah's prayer. The ungodly, and most Christians today, read imprecatory prayers in the Old Testament as though those Old Testament saints have lost their minds, they're raving mad, they're spitting flames, and they want the worst things possible to happen to the other side. It's as if the prayers that they offer, the songs that they sing, are them calling up a hitman agency to get a quote. Look what Nehemiah says. He says, return their reproach on their own heads. It's a New Testament thing. Do to them as they have sought to do to us. He's not asking God to put them on a torture rack and fire up a chainsaw. He's saying, God, give us justice. Just like the prayer that Jesus said. Give them up for plunder into a land of captivity is again a request for God to do to Israel's enemies as had recently been done to them. Verse 5 is where most people kind of have to stop and think for a little bit. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have vexed the builders. Now, not only does it sound like Nehemiah is condemning them to eternal damnation, He gives a reason for it. For they did this. They vexed the builders. They made our work hard, so don't forgive their sin, God. There are a number of different perspectives you could take on a passage like this. I think that there are possibly two things going on here. Nehemiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is prophesying what will come to these opponents of the Jews, which is true, provided Sanballat and company didn't repent. Or, Nehemiah, continuing his theme of justice, is asking God not to forget what they are doing and turn away from his people's plight, but to deal with this sin swiftly. Another way of saying this would be, you are the God of perfect justice. Don't overlook this one. And I think the second seems to fit the context of his entire prayer the best. But Chris, we aren't allowed to pray this way. Jesus tells us, pray for those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. I fully agree with Jesus. 
We absolutely should pray for those who persecute us. And in our prayers, we avoid curses by repenting of a spirit of revenge. We aim to see that the lost be found. We also aim to see, as we're commanded by Christ, to pray, and many of you pray on a daily basis, that God's justice be done on earth. God, let it be done here as it is where you are. How do you pray that prayer without a concern for divine and cosmic justice on this earth? But we don't have any examples of Christians praying imprecatory prayers in the New Testament. We don't. I can give you a big one. When the Lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they had upheld. And they cried out in a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood and judge those who dwell upon the earth? Revelation 6, 9, and 10. Hear the voice of the martyred saints, freed from sin, freed from the corruption of their flesh, and awaiting the day of final judgment. They're speaking directly to the throne of God, a prayer of imprecation. Not for revenge. Justice. They don't have sin anymore. They're in the presence of God. And yet they're saying, Lord, do down there as it's done up here. Bring heaven down. Bring your justice to earth. Here in Nehemiah 4, the author's doing the same. Now this brings up a question of how Christians should handle the Old Testament's use of prayers of imprecation. And I've got three rules for you this morning as you find these throughout your Old Testament readings. Imprecatory prayers are about God's justice, not about our vengeance. This is the one that we've already mentioned. The issue here is our motivation. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord from Romans 12. The sin of Sanballat and Tobiah and the sin of our Clinton Library Board and the city council affect the people of God. But that sin is not ultimately about the people of God. These are the cries of the ungodly raging against their maker. And we can cry to God for justice. Since, number two, since they are inherently concerned with justice, these imprecatory prayers, they are prayers that are made in line with God's will. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you will judge those who do such things and yet, you do them yourself. Do you think that you'll escape the judgment of God? Now that's from Romans 2 verse 3. We are not asking for vengeance, but for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We also have to admit here that we do not know God's will in every case, so these prayers can, as a general rule, be more general. They don't have to be very specific. Pull out his fourth toenail on his left foot for what he did to me. Whoa, motivations, calm it down. Bring judgment back on them, etc. For what purpose? 
Rule number three. Imprecatory prayers remind us of God's perfect plan to destroy his enemies. God destroys countless of his enemies in the death of Jesus Christ so that he may raise them again to life in Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can you want to, as Paul instructed Timothy, hand some of them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Why would he do that? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord? That's where imprecatory prayers should go. That's from 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5. This is exactly the way that Daniel Haas petitioned the Lord during his pastoral prayer of April last year. In essence, he was asking God, you're the judge of all the earth. You do what is right. Judge the wicked such that they may repent. But if not, then let your justice be vindicated. Matthew Henry once said, the reproaches of enemies should rather quicken us to our duty than drive us from it. What was the result of all of the shade throwing that was going on at the beginning of chapter 4? All the ridicule of Sanballat and Tobiah motivated the people of God for their work. Verse 6 tells us that the wall was built back to half its height all the way around, and the people were enthusiastic about their task. Beloved, this is why God allows trials in our lives. As Bunyan said, we are beaten so that we might be better. Perhaps your main action point this week is to repent of kicking against the goads of God's discipline, intending to make you more like Christ. Work with the grain of your afflictions rather than against it. That's what I've been doing this week, I confess. God wants to make us like Christ, and if it takes putting us in prison away from our wife and children for 12 years, may we respond to affliction as Bunyan did. I would rather rot in a cell than disobey the commandments of my God. Because, brothers, it is men like that who are going to build the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you confessing to you that we do not have what it takes in ourselves to do anything good or accomplish this work, this great task that you have given us to build your kingdom. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have already overcome every one of the obstacles we will face. None can stand against us because in Christ we have already conquered. So if there is sin amongst us today, help us to quickly repent of it. Help us to begin to see the wisdom, the perfect care, even, if I may, the beauty with which you select each one of our trials. Because you have a picture ahead of us 
what we can't see yet of what we will become and how we will be beaten in order that we be made better. And would you give us courage this week to fight alongside of one another, helping as we are able to bear those sins together, to help one another murder that sin in each other's lives if it need be. God, to build this kingdom as Christ the King here in Anderson County. We thank you so much for helping us this morning. In every way, we acknowledge you as the King of the universe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.